0: Sean is an Icelandic poet, novelist, and lyricist. His pen name means sight. He has collaborated with the singer Bjork and performed with the Sugar Cubes as Johnny Triumph. He was born in Reykjavik. He published his first book of poetry, Visions, in 1978 at the age of 16. He uh, was a founding member of the neo surrealist group Medusa. He's written screenplays. He's won various prizes in Iceland and the Nordic Council's Literature Prize for the Blue Fox novel. He currently lives in Reykjavik with his wife and two children. And we're in Ottawa, Canada. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Well, thank you. Let's start with David Bowie. Yes? Why was he such an influence?
1: Well, I was uh, eleven, twelve 12 uh, when I discovered his music. And it was just like a revelation to me that uh, what he was doing was possible. He somehow took rock music to another level. And uh, he just spoke directly to kids, I think, all over the globe. The song that got me was Starman. And uh, it was just like, um, uh, it was just like uh, he was calling you. He was like calling you to come and join this international league of people who had decided just to be what they were and, you know, to be as strange as, uh, as they wanted to be. So that was what he gave me and, and many others. And I became absolutely infatuated with him and a uh, massive fan. You know, I, 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 I wallpapered my room with... Uh, mm-hmm posters and pictures. I hunted down every interview I could uh, lay my hands on, which wasn't that easy in, in, in the mid-70s uh, in Iceland. Mm. But we, 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 we got some English and German music papers, mostly. So I started reading everything he, he, he said, you know. I mean, I, I read the interviews and I more or less uh, taught myself proper English to be able to read the interviews and to read the lyrics.
0: That's an interesting motivation. Yes. We, yeah.
1: we, we, we learned some English in school, but uh, I, I really had to take a, another step to be able to read the interviews properly and to understand the lyrics. That's he, a profound
0: influence, isn't it?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. He was very much an educator, you can say. You can also call it name-dropping. But in every interview, he mentioned books that he was reading, uh, films he had seen, musicians he was listening to. And if you're a dedicated fan, you just go and you try to get your hands on it. Because you want to be listening to the same things as your idol is listening to. And you want to read the same books and see the same films. So he really put me and and so many of us on, on a cultural mission. So yeah. I, before I knew it, I had uh, started reading William Burroughs and the Beat Poets and... Uh, uh, li- I-, I was listening to German uh, Progressive, electronica, music... Kraftwerk? Kraftwerk and, and Tangerine Dream. Dream,
0: I loved them. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah he-, he-, he sent sent us in this direction, you know. Then he moved to Berlin for a while, and, and we all became aware of uh, the West-East uh, uh, Berlin situation. Berlin became this important place. So he really widened our horizon and really gave us the message that we should... Uh, just go and follow our curiosity, yeah. So that's what he gave me. And in his lyrics, he, he uh, prepared me, I think, for uh, my first encounter with modernist poetry. Because of his uh, unusual way with words uh, and the strange images that he was using, he prepared me in a way for my encounter with Icelandic
0: modernists. What were they doing that was different?
1: They, they actually changed Icelandic poetry almost overnight in 1948 by publishing a, a string of books. Up to that point, Icelandic uh, poetry had been uh, very traditional. Uh, it relied on alliteration and rhyme and, and traditional, uh, tra- traditional forms. But they uh, uh, brought a free verse and the surrealist metaphor. I discovered this in the winter uh, winter of uh, 77, 77, 78. And that was my introduction to modernist poetry. And because I had been well-schooled by David Bowie in, in strange uh, use of words, uh, I was prepared for this. And I just remember that when I read the atom poets, as they were called, this group of, of, of Icelandic modernists, I, I just knew I had to be a part of this. And I started writing. And before I knew it, I had uh, written enough for a small book and uh, because I had been the editor of the school magazine the year before I knew that you could actually just take your manuscript to this very cheap printer in the center of town and if you handed it over to him and you promised to pay what he asked <laughs> asked for it mm. you would get like three boxes of
0: of books so do these like chapbooks, or they were they card cover? Or? Uh, they,
1: they, they are like they, those books were like somewhere between chapbooks and and, and and proper editions. Okay. And uh, and so all of a sudden, I, I was the proud owner of one hundred copies of, of, one, of of my first book of poetry. And you know, one hundred copies that was more than enough. But I managed to get rid of it, so I, I had had a reprint of fifty copies.
0: <laughs> That's
1: how I started as a poet.
0: It's a fine tradition. It's surprising the number of poets that actually self published their first yes. um, uh, set of uh, of poems. Oh, I know Walt Whitman did, for example, and yes. there's, there's, a, there's a whole range of others. Uh,
1: in Iceland, it is it is it is quite common, especially mm. with poetry, right. that you start uh, start self-publishing or you found like a small publishing. Uh, Group or you know or an edition you know that you run with your friends and that's what yeah. we did with the Medusa Group, but you know in our case Halter Laxness who uh, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1955, yeah, uh, he started as a self-published poet, so we always said you know that if if, if it was enough it, him, good yeah. enough for him you know we it was good enough for us
0: yeah. You know? So did you just sort of hand out these? collections of poetry as a, as a business card or no. did you sell them? Or I, I sold them. You went to the bookstores and yeah, gave yeah. them... Yeah yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I distributed it myself. Uh, mm-hmm. There were like maybe five key bookstores in Reykjavik at the time which sold poetry. So I took some copies there and of course I didn't have a clue what I was doing so the guys there and the and, and the shop managers, you know, they, they had to teach me how to like uh, create invoices and things and they did it. They were like, I think, quite... Uh, chained by this very young kid who just popped up with with his own book of poetry. And then I sold it in cafes and...
0: So you're not a typical introverted poet then?
1: Well, I think I'm introvert enough to be a poet. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm really like two characters, you know. When I'm writing, I really need need my privacy. I need the isolation. That can, you know, I mean, when I'm working on my novels now, maybe I I might isolate myself for three weeks and work, you know, sixteen, eighteen hours a day. And I I couldn't uh, I couldn't do it if if I were in contact with people at the same time. So in my case, you know, it's 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 always this. This outgoing character who likes to participate uh, uh in in different things with people I've done so many collaborations i've done i've started so many groups and things you know mm. and 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 organized events and and concerts and 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 arts exhibitions you know that is really a big part of who I am, but there is also this part which really thrives on the inner dialogue yeah. you know
0: mm. you know uh, so uh it's a pretty good combination. Yes, I think I've been... Because you can I've create been, something and then you can go out and tell the world about it.
1: Yeah, I, I wasn't shy with my book, you know. Uh, and uh, one of the best spots to sell it was actually uh, the bus uh, from my neighborhood, which uh, was just outside the center and which was like the first, one of the first projects, you can say. It was considered quite a tough neighborhood at the time. And it was a 20-minute uh, drive from, from my neighborhood to the center of town on the bus. And I used to sell the books on the bus, so I just walked around the bus and sat down beside people and said, well, guess what, you know, I've just published a book of poetry and this is the book. and uh, And would you like uh, to to take a look? And if they said no, then I said, well, I'll just read one for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Anyway,
1: you know, and and I I sold quite a lot of copies on the Mm -hmm. bus because people were stuck on the bus with me for (laughs) 20 minutes, some of them. Yeah. Yeah. So this was in in 78. And and, and a year later, we founded this group, uh, Medusa, which uh, was founded around uh, around, uh, ideas of surrealism and uh, European avant-garde, you can say.
0: Yeah, let's look at Surrealism. What's your definition of it and how did it affect you and your poetry?
1: Well, uh, in the beginning it was the excitement of the Surrealist metaphor. What's that? Uh, it's, it's this combination of, of strange things when you bring together, I mean, at, at heart, uh, Surrealist poetics are about the metaphor. And uh, André Breton, uh, the founder of surrealism, he took as an example the, uh, the sentence by uh, Comte de L'Otremont uh, from his book called uh, Le Chance de Maltoror, where uh, L'Otremont says uh, he was beautiful as the chance encounter of an umbrella and a sewing machine on a dissection table. So this is the absolute surrealist metaphor, and this is at the, at the core of the surrealist ars poetica. And there is something very excited about creating uh, images like that with, with words, mm-hmm. and uh, so at the
0: beginning it was very just… Very unexpected.
1: Very unexpected, very uh, rebellious, uh, very, uh, uh, very much taking, the, taking language to the limits of what is understandable yes. and beyond yeah. that, really. Yeah. Yeah and for a kid that was very exciting you know at the same time you know uh, punk had come into my life you know punk music and the punk movement you can say
0: some have actually uh, suggested that bowie was partly responsible yeah for yeah
1: i everybody loved bowie you know he was he was the, he was one of the very few older musicians that the punks respected Accepted. you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they 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 just kept their love for him you know mm. throughout so uh, there was a sense of rebellion there and and organizing uh, uh, organizing around an idea so uh, after having been uh, mostly fascinated about let's say the <clears throat> surface uh, elements of surrealism the surrealist metaphor and surrealist painting of course in the mm-hmm. form of Salvatore dali and mm-hmm. Real Magritte and uh, max ernst and these people then i started looking at, uh, at what sur- what the surrealists had been doing you know and uh, of course they had been like this very rebellious uh, political movement as well and that uh, fed into uh, fed into the excitement uh, excitement that punk was bringing mm-hmm. uh, so when we founded medusa or started medusa which was a group of seven we called it a movement so it was a movement of seven
0: there is a, a group a group of seven in canada an important painters.
1: Yes, seven. yes. Seven
0: is a it pretty. Uh, it's. Did you did you settle on seven and say we're having no more members, or it just happened that there? Was
1: it, it happened, you know, that we, we, we in the end we were seven, and there were like you know some people uh, uh, like circling around the group who never like joined the group. There was never a way of joining the group, you know. Some I mean, we we could have been much more, but we we never became more than seven. Mm-hmm. And then we started, like, organizing exhibitions and performances, and uh, we joined forces with uh, with emerging uh, musicians on the, on, the, on the new wave or, or punk scene, you mm. know. So we did things uh, where, you know, where we combined, like, rock concerts and, and, and poetry readings and things like that.
0: And that, uh, the thing that blows my mind is that there's only 330,000 people in... Uh Yeah, in Iceland, and yet uh, you know you've you've made quite an impact on the rest of the world. Yeah,
1: there's 330, maybe 340,000 of us now. It's possible there were like 270,000 in the
0: in the 70s. That's not even. I mean, Ottawa, the Greater Ottawa area, is a million, and the 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 city of Ottawa itself, specifically, is about three four hundred thousand. Yeah.
1: I, you know, one of the things that happens in a, in, in, in a small small city, we call Reykjavik a city, is that if you if, if you want to do something, you just go out there and you do it. You know, I mean, there there is always an opportunity.
0: A bit of freedom. There is
1: an empty space somewhere where you can organize a concert or or uh, you know another space where you can like uh, you, you can start a makeshift gallery for a few months or something, and you mm. just go there and do it. And because uh, in a small, uh, small, small society in a small country like Iceland, you know, you're never doing those things with uh, with any expectation of, of uh, financial return. You, you know, you know. just do it because of you want something to happen in your boring little city.
0: But is there a greater percentage of the population that's artistic in Iceland than the rest of the world, or what? One of the one of
1: the things that uh, might explain why we have such a big number of people trying their hands at uh, at arts in iceland and stepping forward uh, as musicians or writers or visual artists or filmmakers or dancers now or or what have you is that you know that it is respected you know it's it's respected mm-hmm. that you know that this is something that you should try or you could try you know yeah. so when i published my first book uh, at the age of 15 turning 16 Nobody said, you know, well, what, what is he doing? Nobody said to my mother, is, is he okay? Yes, you know, yes, I mean, it yes. was just like, okay, he wants to publish a book of poetry. Let's see what comes out of it. Maybe he will only publish this one book of poetry mm-hmm. and then become a teacher or, a, you know, or a plumber, you know, or
0: but God uh, knows what,
1: you know. And and then years later, he will look back on, on, on this book and maybe feel a little bit embarrassed, but happy that he did it anyway. Yeah, you know. yeah. So there's
0: so, an accepting environment. Then,
1: yes, right? yes. On one Mm. hand, there is an uh, an, uh, accepting environment, and the other, there is a great um, tradition of uh, collaboration. And um, my generation took a great advantage of that. For example, I I never saw saw any difference between uh, uh, writing poetry and publishing it in books, or going on stage and, and shouting it with punk music, you know. Yeah. We, we yeah, s- yeah. There, there was no high or low or mm-hmm. or or, or respect- respectable way or, or 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 unrespectable way of delivering your poetry. My friends were in bands, you know, and. Mm. I sometimes envy the envy them
0: you know mm-hmm. well they had more girls today or? no,
1: they didn't get more girls, you know poetry has always like brought you girls in Iceland and boys if you're if, 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 if you're a girl or if if, if if you're looking in that direction mm-hmm. so no no uh, poetry is sexy in Iceland. no it was just like uh, I, I envied them the spontaneity of it you know that they could like just write the song, write the lyrics, and they could perform it like. 3 hours later at, at, yeah. at the next gig you know yeah. so so there were many elements in in the in the punk music which uh, which i saw, uh, saw that had advantage over writing and, and, and publishing on paper and and there was a and there was a mutual respect all, all across all across the art forms and and, and, and genres and what 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 have you and that is one of the strengths of the Icelandic uh, cultural scene, I think, that we are all ready to collaborate.
0: Well, with Björk, for with your, it's in your own. case, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. She, she turned up uh, around the Medusa group. Uh, a part of the Medusa group became a band called Van Houten's Coco. and they started playing, uh, playing, of course, on the, on the punk scene. And uh, one, of the, one of the Medusa poets, Thor Elton, who, who was the guitarist of this band, he met Björk. Uh, they, they were playing the same gig somewhere, you know, and... Then one day he said, you know, uh, would you like to meet me downtown uh, with my new girlfriend? And I said, yes. And then I went downtown and there he was. And it was Björk, who was his new girlfriend. She was 16. We were 19, I think. And from that moment, she became uh, one of the main satellites of the Medusa group. And she participated in some of the things that we did. We started collaborating in those years, really.
0: And she's very experimental and uh, yeah. avant-garde. And, yeah, that,
1: that's what we were, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. and that's another—that's another side to Icelandic uh, culture. There is really a, there is really a demand on you if if you're going to write or, or or make music. There is a demand on you that you do something new, that you try to. <laughs> Expand, you know, the art form, and you you, you try to. So what they you start go across you if it was the
0: same old, same old, they wanted. To
1: yeah, nobody wants a young poet to to, to be too traditional. I mean, we, we expect Good. our young poets to challenge everything that has gone on before. And I must say, in, in in connection with that, that we are very proud of Guy Martin, the the Canadian filmmaker from Winnipeg, yeah, from Winnipeg. He's of an, he's of uh, of um, of an Icelandic origin. Uh, and we are very proud of him because we think that he is a he he is a good example of a, of, of the Icelandic spirit in arts. You know, <laughs> just do what the hell you need. You know, mm-hmm. and, and never ask and never look back. You know, mm-hmm. just go and completely transform your art form. And that's what he has been doing in his films. And and we really admire him.
0: Another um, aspect of Icelandic art is the fact that, and you called it just sort of. A magpie going around and decorating your nest with beautiful things, but borrowing
1: yes when you're when you're when you're an island, you are used to things uh, drifting <laughs> onto your shores from from somewhere mm-hmm. and and you just try to to make whatever you can of it you know and and you might discover completely new ways of of, of using things you know because you simply don't know what it what it was made for, and uh, and we have been very good at uh, taking um, taking on all sorts of influences from
0: uh, well, surrealism, I bigger guess.
1: culture, and then just doing whatever we need with it. Surrealism uh, has, for example, in Iceland, helped it helped renew uh, renew our poetry. It also helped us renew uh, the tradition, you know, because surrealism opened up a new view on on, on uh, uh, many aspects uh, of our literature. Which have been forgotten or put aside, you know, because they fit—they they never fit in anywhere. Especially, you know, after after the academians took over uh, organizing and uh, and defining Icelandic the Icelandic literary heritage, there were pockets there of strange poetry that have come that had come come to us down through the ages, you know. which we, they did, we they could, did, they didn't
0: uh, fit into the academics' view of what.
1: What was good literature? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 for example, you know, uh, what we did was that we looked uh, more at at, uh, the folklore rather than the Icelandic sagas. You know, so we looked for you. We looked for the the more folksy things, the superstitions, Mm -hmm. the horror stories. You know, which fit in with surrealism and and yeah and we wanted like, the ex- extreme things we, we were trying to make.
0: You mentioned somewhere that the folk uh, tales are, are like the, the, the real people, whereas the sagas are more like the rulers. Is that differentiation? Uh, the sagas are,
1: are, are in a way from the beginning uh, academic. You know, the sagas mm. are written by uh, the learned uh, elite in Iceland, mm. and they are fantastic.
0: What's your favorite?
1: Uh, my favorite is Egil saga, the saga of Eilí. Eilí was a was a poet and, How do you spell and, that? and a warrior. E G I L okay. L. Eilí is Grímsson. And he was this fantastic um, combination of, uh, of a poet and a warrior. Uh, he was uh, uh, on his father's side. Uh, he he was he descended from uh, uh, from berserkers, bear warriors, and werewolves. So there was always very much of the beast in him. But he had this amazing mind and amazing way with words. He was very ugly, you know, but his mind was full of beauty. He's one of my favorite Saga characters, and his book is, is wonderful and wonderfully written.
0: His, he, he wrote a book? No, no. He, he, it's he, a book about a bo- It's him. a book about him, okay.
1: but uh, the book uh, uh, includes many examples of his poetry, and which is attributed to him. You know, we, Of course, we can't know if he really no. wrote it, but this is poetry that 300 after his death is attributed to him. We know a little bit about what he actually did with words, and then we have his story which, of course, we have to take, uh, to take as it is. But it's a beautiful story about a man who is the greatest warrior and then uh, loses everything and is denied a warrior's death. A warrior should die in a battle, but Eid uh, dies of old age, which was the great strategy for, for a Viking. And, uh, he's ashamed of that? He, he's struggling with it, you know, he doesn't take his own life, you know, but no. he, he's getting incredibly grumpy and strange, you know.
0: Because he wanted a war? He
1: wanted he wanted excitement, you know, and, and his last wish was that his, that his uh, son, I think it was his son uh, rather than his grand, grandson, he wanted him to take him uh, with him to the Althing, to the Parliament, and they would bring Ait's uh, 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 coffers of silver, and Ait was going to stand there and throw the silver over the over the over the gathering, and enjoy seeing them fight over it. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he said, they they pretend they're civilized and that they have this parliament of theirs and and rule of law, but let's see what happens when I throw throw my silver into the group. Gritty. But he, he died before he could do that. But, you know, that was like the last thing he was, thing, he, thing he was going to do. a wonderful, wonderful character. And, uh, and the book has this, this amazing, amazing combination of incredible brutality and, uh, and poetic beauty.
0: And is this, I mean, there must have been a very good translation of this. Who did the best translation of it?
1: Uh, we read it in the original. You know, this, those books were written in, in, in the 13th century. In old century. Icelandic or...? Yeah, they were written in, 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 in the Icelandic. They spoke and, and wrote yeah. in, in the 13th century.
0: Right. And we can
1: still read it.
0: Okay.
1: We can still read it. I've got here with me, uh, because I was reading it on the way over here to Ottawa, I've got with me a 13th century translation of, of a medieval poem. and And I can just read it, you know.
0: Without any trouble. Yes, yes. Because I mean, this we can is, read Chaucer, but it's a challenge to yeah. read Chaucer in, in old English.
1: This is also uh, this, 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 this is also an explanation of of the strength of Icelandic culture. I think you know we we have a direct access to all our.
0: So the language hasn't changed that cultural much. Cultural history; it
1: hasn't changed that much. Oh, there are of right. course words here and there in, a, in, in right. an old text like this right. that you have to think twice about, or. You know, there is a word and word that you have to look up, uh, but in general, we we just read it, and it makes us contemporaries in a way of these people. Yeah, you yeah. know, and I have said that you know I feel that I, in my writing, that I am uh, having a direct dialogue with these people. You know, and that I am might uh, sometimes take a a sentence or a thought. Uh, you don't have to worry about from from yeah. no 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 from Snorri Narius who who is who's is who's a known writer in the in the 13th century and expand on it you know yeah, like yeah. you know with full license and and uh, full confidence
0: well we can read shakespeare i think it ta- for me anyway it takes the, the first act yes to just sort of get into it yes. and start getting used to the language but after Second, third act—it's—it becomes a page-turner in many yes, cases. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so yeah, I guess yes. it's, we're not that—that we're talking the early 1600s. Yes, yes. And yours is 1300s. Yeah, uh, 1200s. So, so the English language changed a fair amount between the, the 12th and the, the yes. 1200s and the 1600s, but the Icelandic, I guess, didn't.
1: No, and uh, it's mm. interesting for us to read uh, for example, the Beowulf, yeah because we with 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 the English that we've got and the Icelandic that we've got, we can read it pretty easily, still that close to to the to the old uh, Norse and old Icelandic so this is one of the one of the reasons we we step forward into the world you know with confidence because that is also a part of it i mean. Yeah. The one thing is to have like a very thriving, strong local cultural scene. Yeah. But why on earth does does this group of people think that they should take this out into the big world? Yeah. One of the reasons is that uh, because of the Icelandic sagas, and because we know that it is world literature, that is something. Those texts are something that stand in comparison with Shakespeare and Dante and and Cervantes and you just name it. Mm. Those, those texts are. On, on that level of sophistication and, and linguistic uh, command, you know.
0: Sophistication. Sophistication.
1: This is like, I, I've always said that this is like our gold, uh, what would you call it, our, our gold reserve, you know. Mm-hmm. We, all, we, all, we, we always have the sagas,
0: they're our gold reserve, you know. <laughs> and no one can take them away from you. No, no,
1: it's there. It's, yeah. it's, it's, they are our Mona Lisas, you know. They are our cathedrals, they are our Beethoven symphonies, whatever.
0: But has there been a really good modern translation of them? because uh, i mean you can access them but i can't no no yeah
1: yeah i mean they they have been translated into english uh, the first uh, english translations appear i would guess in the late uh, 18th century quite a number is translated in the 19th century the the, but the, there are very fine new translations published by penguin classics okay, yeah yeah, yeah. So they are everywhere, you know. And uh, and when Goethe was uh, defining the concept of world literature in the in with his with his group of uh, group of friends, you know, uh, the Icelandic sagas was one of the examples they took of of great literature appearing in early, early yeah. and in a place you know that uh, was not directly tied in with the great uh, powers of right. So it's kind of original, yes. Yeah. But of mm. course, Icelandic sagas are written because of the scholarship uh, and the uh, and, uh, level of education that existed in the country at the time. Our first bishops were educated in the Cluny monasteries in, in, in France and, uh, and uh, maybe northern Spain. So they brought with them uh, to Iceland as early as the late uh, 11th century. They bring the knowledge of, of writing books and, and making books and manuscripts. They bring uh, the Latin, of course, and, and, and uh, astrology and everything. So we, had really, we really had centers of education in Iceland very early on. Mm-hmm. And the sagas, they come, they, they come from, that, from that environment. So today we step forward, you know, I mean, because we have this gold uh, reserve. Halter Laxness he gets the Nobel Prize in 1955. So he renews our license, you know, in the world of literature.
0: Well, he gives you what? Confidence? Yes,
1: he gives yeah. us confidence, and uh, somehow he proves that you can still um, that this gold reserve is still, you know, it's there, and that uh, you. It's you, still you, sparkling. It's still sparkling, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the sugar cubes happened, and 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 Björk continued. So, for music in Iceland, that was like the great. Uh, Proof that uh, that we could bring something of worth in, uh, into the world from from that side of culture. So we just go into the world and say, you know, this is what we're doing. You know,
0: yeah. Well, <laughs> it's been hugely successful. I'm interested to to read that that you're fascinated by beginnings. You've said that in the past, and it's it's funny because I've just come from an interview with an American poet, well known and well regarded, Alice. Notley, who's also fascinated in beginnings. So, what, what is it about beginnings that are? You, you talk about uh, cradles and creation stories, fairy tales, strange, strange things, that kind of thing. Well, trying I'm, to make sense of reality. Yeah.
1: Well, well, I'm just fascinated by the fact that uh, that uh, man has, for as long as we've known that creature has been able to make sense of his origin and the origin of the universe. It is really, really strange that no matter how small the culture, how remote the culture, they will have a creation story. And they will have a creation story that matches...
0: Similarities across the board, you mean?
1: Across the board and across centuries and millennia. Every, all people like uh, the great, uh, recently deceased Stephen Hawking, and these people are doing, is that they, they, they are proving, with the latest science, that the
0: stories are, the very stories are all
1: very accurate. You know, right. and simply the fact that the human being can imagine a time when there was nothing, not even time. And this comes from culture that uh, we used to call primitive. They had this knowledge. This concept
0: of of time without time.
1: This concept of nothing and coming Mm. from nothing is amazing. Mm. And is really the start of all human imagination, you know, and and, and all creation,
0: Mm.
1: literary uh, and social creation uh, uh, after that. So I'm very fascinated by this this root of our uh, human existence. And recently, actually, uh, I've been uh, thinking about and working uh, uh, with the idea that the first time man remembered his dreams, or a dream, is the beginning of everything. What do you mean? Of course we don't know if, uh, let's say, cats remember their dreams when they wake up. You know, they'd open their eyes, and they just get going, you know. We don't know if they distinguish between the, 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 the dream experience and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the wakeful experience. And I'm very excited about the idea that man at a certain point became aware of the fact that he had been somewhere in his dream. He had been in a reality where most of the elements of his reality, as, as, as he knows them, but let's say he was able to fly, or he had encounters with his dead relatives. This, this happens in the dream world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and
0: I think… Th- What's that got to do with creation, though, I think th- or origins?
1: No, no, this, this, this gave him the tools. This gave him the, this, this gave him the tools to start thinking about the world as something which was much more flexible than just the everyday hard rea- reality and i think so from, his, his i ideas. think from there he started thinking from there he started he, he, he gained abstract thought and and it abstract thought is of course what it took to get to the point of creation so i think the man, man's mm-hmm. awareness of his dreams or a, mm-hmm. or remembering a dream
0: or comparing his dream to reality yes, and saying just well, just
1: well, just re- all of a sudden Realizing that he he was living in two worlds, I think it is an amazing. And they're,
0: they're both equally, you know. When you wake up from a, a powerful dream, it's as if you you felt it, yes. right? Yes.
1: In the dream experience, you're in the experience. You're not questioning it. Of mm. course, we have moments in our dreams where uh, all of a sudden we become become aware of the dream, and we usually wake up rather mm. quickly after mm. that. Mm. On the on the on the other 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 hand we have had experiences in our waking life where we questioned what is going on well like you know. coincidences
0: that yes, bring you
1: out yes and you know people have all sorts of experiences in their waking lives you know which we can't explain so i i'm quite uh, excited now about this idea of the of of the dream as the origin of uh, abstract thought and 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 the origin of poetry and religion and uh, yeah but and it's therefore it's therefore, the creation
0: yeah, okay. stories. Uh, th- I mean the surrealists were pretty interested in dreams, weren't they?:
1: Yes, it was all about dreams, mm-hmm. all about dreams. Yeah. And uh, they were uh, of course uh, under a strong influence uh, uh, under a strong influence from, from, from the works of, of Sigmund Freud. Yes, you know? and
0: interpretation. Of e- dreams, even
1: right. though even though Freud never understood them and never wanted anything to do with them and thought they were just idiots. Who, who really didn't get what he was, he was trying to do, mm-hmm. uh, they relied very much on, on, on his model of, of uh, the, the pleasure principle and the reality principle and, and, and all those things. And the pleasure pre- principle manifesting in, your, in our dreams and the reality principle manifesting, obviously, in, 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 in our everyday
0: life. Yeah, so I
1: have worked quite, quite a lot with that, you know, and...
0: What do you mean you've worked with it? You're trying to incorporate it into the next yeah, I, novel, or...? I, I,
1: throughout my, throughout my, my career, I've, I've mm. both written poetry that, that, that relies on dream logic, you can say, and uh, is in a dialogue with uh, dream narratives. And uh, in my novels, I usually create a reality where the borders between what is real and what is imagined are not as uh, fixed...
0: But well, it's like uh, magical realism, then. Yeah,
1: but for me, it's always about man's mind being at work within reality. So, we are having our uh, we are having our 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 hardcore uh, uh, material existences. You know, at the same time, we are continu- continuously reading into that reality and evaluating Re- reading that reality. Into it? Yeah, reading yeah. into it, interpreting it. You know, reacting to it. And the only tools we have to do that is, is what we've learned, you know, and, and, and the stories we, we have to compare, uh, compare the, the experience with. So man is always half <laughs> in the flesh and half in the mind, you yeah. know, and that is what I do in my stories. So usually in my stories, the main characters are occupied uh, by some ideas or at the grips of some obsessions or something which completely color color their experience, mm. but the experience is taking place in reality. What I don't like about uh, using uh, the term magical realism about my, my my work is because of that, is because what happens in, in them is always absolutely rooted in reality, reality yeah, and the yeah. person never leaves reality, okay. and we
0: never leave reality. It's the brain interpreting reality. Yes, yeah. and,
1: and, and you know, for me like... Uh, Religious experiences like trances and, 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 and all those things, they are real. They are real to yeah. the people who, yeah. who are having them. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything that has been written, you know, all po- all the poetry that comes, comes to us uh, down through the ages, it, it, it is real. You know, it is real. It's a part of our reality. So in my books, you know, I, I bring together those characters who are constantly reading themselves, you know, uh, um, uh, into reality and reading, uh, trying to read the reality into uh, into their own experiences and, and comparing it with, with, with what they know.
0: Yeah. Let me quote from uh, Matthew uh, Zabruder's latest book. Okay. Why poetry? He says poetry is const- uh, is a constructed conversation on the frontier of dreaming. It is a mechanism by which the essential state of reverie can be made available to our conscious minds by means of the poem we can enter this state of reverie with all our faculties alert and intact poems make possible a conscious entry into the pre-conscious mind a lucid dreaming what do you think about that i think it's fantastic because i I
1: will go and get get that book now yeah it's it's very good Yeah. yeah No, this is, this is what I'm talking about, and uh, uh, about when I'm talking about this, uh, this, this moment where we, the dreams became a part of our, our, our reality and, and, and conscious mind.
0: Well, and storytelling is a, is a way that, that we used to try and make sense of reality, right?
1: Yes. The only thing we do from the moment we are born until we until we uh, uh, leave uh, leave existence, uh, is to make sense of things.
0: Mm-hmm. The human
1: no. being is is here to
0: make sense of things. That's right. We're to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, constantly. And, um, and that's why it's such a challenge. Is because we don't know what took place before. We don't know what's going to take place after. So it's a it's a huge question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And, but, and so we're sort of spinning around trying to figure that out, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's the only thing we do. <laughs> we just we just go around trying to make sense of things and understanding. We try to understand, you know, what is happening to us, and we try to understand what other people are saying, you know. I mean, we're in this constant dialogue, you know. And of course, we can be nihilistic about it and, and, and just admit that it will take us nowhere, but out, <laughs> out of the situation in the end, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a whole, a whole world view, isn't it? It's it's either you're optimistic that there's more to this than
1: yes, there yes. is,
0: or yeah, you know, it's yeah. fine, make the most of it while you're here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some of some of us continue. <laughs> the disbelievers, they will just lie in the graves, you <laughs> know. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the rest will, you know, go somewhere else, you know, to different places.
0: In your novel, the the whispering muse, you used the. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts' myth, and what was interesting is that, and you've, you've taken this from Ovid's Metamorphosis, Bowie was all about metamorphosis. Yes. This sort of interesting androgynous. Yeah. <clears throat> and Canis went from being born as a... As a girl. A girl into a man into a bird.
1: Yeah. He's a rare example in the in the in the Greek uh, myths and the Greek corpus uh, of someone actually going going through two metamorphoses. Mm-hmm. You know, mo- mm-hmm. mo- most most people you know um, go through go through it once. You know, from man to a star, or man to a tree, or man to a spider, or something. So he's a rare example of, of someone having the second metamorphosis. I think the the idea of metamorphosis is one of the most uh, wonderful uh, ideas. Uh, man has come up with. And again, it's something we find in, find in every place on earth, in every civilization, no matter how big or small. And it's a fantastic literary tool. So I always try to, to include a little bit uh, of metamorphosis in all my books. You know, there's always, even the tiniest metamorphosis is there, you know. I, I like metamorphosis as a literary tool.
0: Well, we all go through different, lo- we live different lives, don't we? I mean, or some people, maybe they live the same life throughout their, their whole time on Earth, but many of us live, yeah. we do, obviously we, we change because of environmental factors or yeah, new thinking, yeah. or that's, that's the nature of our lives, is things change and we have to adapt.
1: Yes, yes. And, you know, um, those who do not adapt, they, they perish, you know, that's how it is. But metamorphosis is also about acknowledging uh, uh, man's relationship with nature on a very deep level, because it strips you of your uh, exclusive uh, human superiority. It it uh, it admits that we are of the same material as nature, the mm-hmm. natural, different natural beings. So there is a, there is a very strong uh, nature mysticism or or uh, simply uh, ecological. Uh, uh, thinking in it as well, which 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 I uh, which I admire
0: in the myth, or in what
1: the myths they admit this, you know, through 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 this. the idea of metamorphosis, the idea of metamorphosis uh, uh, admits that there isn't like a, a steel barrier. Between the human being and the, and the rest of the natural world.
0: Okay, right. We're, not, know, we're uh, not invincible, or we're not
1: invincible, and and we are simply made of that material. Material, mm-hmm. you
0: know, and that material changes,
1: and that material can change. Yeah. So so it is. Um, it's a it's a humbling experience to 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 go through a, a real metamorphosis as they as they do and mm-hmm. do in, yeah. in, the, in the in the in the Greek and Roman myths and 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 then in all the different uh, different uh, mythologies and belief systems you know we know if you go through a total metamorphosis it's a humbling experience mm.
0: yeah well you often have to start from scratch uh, yeah yeah
1: well, all of a sudden you're a wolf you know now yeah. you have to be a, now you have, you have to survive to, as a wolf right. you know you have to figure We're,
0: out what wolves are supposed to do, yeah, do you, yeah
1: yeah yeah where is your next meal
0: that's right. <laughs> Congratulations, by the way, on uh, the future library project. Well, thank you. That's a, a forest that they're growing, right? And they've got different writers who are contributing yes. to this time capsule. Yeah, it's
1: a 100-year uh, project, uh, and uh, I was the third author to take part. Your very own uh, Margaret Atwood was the first. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, the brain, right. it is the brainchild of a, a Scottish artist called Katie Patterson. And the idea is that, uh, that uh, every year for the next 100 years until 2114, an author uh, uh, will contribute a, a text to this, this uh, future library.
0: How long is the text?
1: It can be anything from one word to wh- 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 whatever you're uh, able to write in uh, five months or so. Okay. And we are not allowed to, to even hint at if we wrote a word or a whole novel or a play or a cycle of poems. The secret. It's a secret. So what they did was that they, they, they cleared, uh, they cleared uh, the ground in a forest north of Oslo and they planted new trees. Those trees will, will, will grow for 100 years, and then they will be chopped down and used to make paper for the anthology of, of the texts, and that is when the library comes into being as a, as a library of
0: books. And How the, is that? The, the, the books, I mean, there's going to be one anthology, or is there going to be a whole bunch of them? <clears throat> I guess there must be, if there's 114 or so. There will be 100
1: books, or 100, uh, I don't know. We don't know how they will, how they will handle the publication okay. of it in one hundred years. there will be a location
0: there, there will be a li- like a... Uh, a the, the,
1: in, the, in the new city library in Oslo, there will be a room dedicated okay. to okay. the library, the future library. And the room will be actually uh, paneled with, uh, with wood from the trees that were felt oh, to make gosh. space for the new trees. Yes. So it's all very sustainable and organic. And one of the things that you, that uh, happens when you when you're asked to do this is that you have to, you're forced to think about the future. You know, you're forced to think about uh, the language you're writing in. Uh, you're forced to think about uh, if uh, there will be books in uh, 2114. We don't know. Yeah. Maybe this will be a unique experiment in the year one, one, 2114 that somebody actually chops down a wood and. A forest and and from the wood um, they make paper and they they print books like in the old days. We don't know, but uh, it's been said that this uh, pro- projects like projects like this they uh, are a part of what you can call cathedral thinking, which is when we come together uh, as uh, generations to create something like the great cathedrals in Europe in the old days.
0: That's it, right. You never know what is going to turn out to look like after. Yes. Well, no, there's- the architect's plans, but all sorts of things. It takes hundreds of years yes, to make. Yes, right? yes, yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, in our times, you know, with uh, climate change happening and, you know, the, the warming effects of, of, the, of the climate change and the great upheaval we're going to see in the next next years. Because of that, you know, with, with human... Uh, the human species all of a sudden, you know, just like... Uh, Moving across the planet in, in search of a place to live, you know, we will mm-hmm. see masses of people,
0: refugees migrating yeah.
1: from from all over and migrating. You know, I mean, of course, like in California, the rich will, will they will they, they will move as soon as they can. You know, they will they will buy their way out and they they will buy buy a place somewhere where where they think they will be safe and, and have access to the necessities. Mm-hmm. But then you, they will of course leave the poor behind, and then the poor will get on the road as well, you know, and they might come up here, Mm. to the north, (laughs) to Canada, you know, you will get Californian refugees
0: here, you know, climate change
1: refugees. It's true. We'll
0: have the climate of California too.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So this is happening. and, and, And so I think projects like the Future Library are important in helping us remembering that we can think as a group about the future and we can create the future together.
0: Um, I'm glad we we talked about uh, sort of a physical location, because one of the uh, projects that I've been working on over the years is literary tourism, and you're connected to the City of Literature. Uh, Rektovik was an early one, I guess. Yes, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about about that concept, the City of Literature, and what you've done in Rektovik? To promote it and to to attract people to the city, well, literary tourists. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, this is a UNESCO project, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Edinburgh, Dublin, Iowa City, were among the first, very first literature litera- literature Edinburgh. Cities, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cities of literature and. Uh, To become a city of literature, you have to be one already. That is the thing.
0: Yes. So
1: you have to prove your worth as a city of literature to the uh, committee that selects those cities and the cities that are already there. They also have their say in uh, which uh, new cities join the group. What you have to do is to to, uh, do research into the history of literature in your city. You have to uh, demonstrate that... Your city is a city where uh, literature is respected, where 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 authors uh, are um, an important part of, of the history of the, of of the city, and and they have been uh, important in in uh, defining what the city is, and 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 you have to have a culture of libraries and bookshops and all that, you know. So it's really you know you have to examine your city. You have to. Test your city. Is your city really a, a city of literature? There, there have to be literary festivals, and and in 2011, uh, Iceland, the capital of Iceland, um, Reykjavik, became the first city outside the English-speaking world to become a, a city of literature. And uh, you have to man- maintain it as well. You know, it's it's not like you 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 are awarded like this title, and that you can just keep it forever. You know, you have to man- maintain your status as a city of literature and uh, obviously in our case uh, uh, literature is a big big part uh, I think both of our self-image and uh, the outside view on our country mm. we, we, we are known as, as, as a country of, of, of book-loving people you know and we've been that for, for almost two centuries now in, in yeah, I think so. So, mm-hmm. so it was a proof of
0: that. So, what should I do when I go to Reykjavik as a literary tourist? What's there for me to do? What
1: What is there for you to do? Okay, there is. Uh, there, there, there are of course like you know uh, places you can visit, like you know the house of Benedict Granthal, who was a, a natural naturalist and and and, and a poet. Uh, you can visit his his house in the center of Reykjavik. You can go to one of the one of the many. Poetry readings that are taking place, you know, um, I would say almost every week, you know, in many languages, you know, because a part of Reykjavik becoming a, a, a city of literature, a part of Reykjavik growing as a city of literature, uh, is to acknowledge that we have become a, a literary community where where uh, Icelandic isn't the only language anymore. Mm. You know, we have people from all over the world living in Reykjavik, and they continue writing in their own languages and it is, let's say, the duty of the city of literature to welcome them and and, and help them find a way into the existing literary community and then uh, support uh, their activities.
0: Is there an annual literary festival?
1: We have a biannual inter- international festival which mm-hmm. has been uh, running uh, since, uh, well, 1985 or something like that. So it's it's quite, quite an established festival and it, it's in, in the fall. It would be a great time to visit Reykjavik as a, as a, as a literary tourist uh, to come there in the, in the beginning of September, every odd year. So it will not yes, be September. this year, it will be the next year. And the list of names that we've had to that uh, had as guests of that festival is is really, really amazing.
0: What's your favorite used bookstore?
1: Ah, there is a bookstore in the center of Reykjavik, which is called Boka Vardan. It's owned by a man uh, who, uh, well, he's 80. He will, he will turn 80 this year. And it's 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 uh, it's uh, it's been in various places actually around the around the around the city mm. since I started going there uh, in 1978. So for 40 years, uh, this uh, antiquarian bookstore has been like uh, with us. And like I said, it's been it, it's been migrating throughout the mm. city because mm. he you know sometimes he's rent or whatever rent and sometimes he's gone almost bankrupt and all that, you know, but Mm. it's run now by his son. It's a fantastic, fantastic bookstore. It's a very eccentric bookstore as well because they they don't bother uh, organizing books by the alphabet, for example, you Mm. know, in alphabetical order. And I was there two days ago Mm. looking for a book and there was a woman who came into the store uh, looking for something and uh, the son of the owner, uh, who's an old friend of mine, he, he said, oh, those are the shelves where we have, have, have uh, religious books. And uh, she so went to the shelf and, and, and started looking around. And then he said, oh, yeah, no, 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 they're not in alphabetical order. <laughs> so just look throughout, through, through the, <laughs> all the shelves, you know, and maybe it's there. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know that sounds like foils used to be in London. Oh yes,
1: yes. the yeah. Wonderful chaos of
0: foils. Yes. No longer a chaos. No. But it used to be. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Anything else? That uh, there's, there's the writer's house. There's the. Is there a good, uh, interesting library there?
1: Yeah, we have a very fine, we've uh, fine city library and the national library, and uh, we've got uh, fine bookstores which are open to. Ten o'clock in the night. Most of them, they have cafes, so people come and just browse and, and, and read. And
0: uh, what about uh, print printing museums? Anything like that? No,
1: we haven't got anything like that. Okay. No, but we've got, like I said, few 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 of those authors' houses, and uh, uh, so mm. apparently we have we have enough. And then, of course, I mean, uh, with Icelandic sagas, uh, many people. Uh, Go out of Reykjavik and visit the 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 places where the sagas, uh, the, where where the narratives happen. You know, there's there's a, there's a special group yeah. that does that. And then we have
0: uh, yeah, that'd be great to read the saga before you show up. Yeah, and then go on. Then tours. you go on
1: a saga tour and and you visit visit the places. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And if you're lucky, you can have a you can have a literary moment uh, in Reykjavik uh, on a clear day, because then you would see. The Snifelsnes Peninsula. The which? It's a peninsula called Snifelsnes, and it has an old uh, old volcano, a beautiful mountain like our Fuji, Mount Fuji. Mm. So you would see it from a great distance, and this is a literary experience because it was the entry point for uh, the journey to the center of the world in Jules Verne's book. You know, so they entered the entered the center of the world. They, they started the journey there, and also Halldor our Fine Nobel Prize winner. He, one of his one of his best books takes place there, so it's a literary moment. You can have like <laughs> <laughs> in Reykjavik when you see that glacier, because that glacier is also seen as a kind of a holy, holy, holy place in one, many of our older, older texts. You know, in the older texts, great men they, they died into mountains. They say, so you die and you become one with a mountain. You so enter. You're in you buried in the, the word the wording is quite strange they they say to to die into a mountain or pass into the mountain that is that is your death uh. and you become one with the mountain we don't we really don't know where this comes from mm. because it's not a part of the Nordic mythologies or anything It could be something from the celts i don't know because mm-hmm. we are we see ourselves uh, as a as, as, as a Nordic celtic people you know mm-hmm. Quite a big part of the population has been proven to have Celtic origins, you know, yeah, through, yeah. The, through the through the through the genetic research, we've discovered that. And we're a good example of a culture that, at first sight, seems to be a culture that has thrived in isolation, you know, over the centuries. But our history has always been a history of both using in an innovative way whatever comes to our shores, but also traveling. Icelanders have been great travelers from from the beginning.
0: Well, actually, who um, W. H. Auden famously traveled to Iceland with... I think it was Louis MacNeice. Yes, yes. And they wrote... A, I've read the book. Yes, letters uh, from Iceland, mm-hmm. yes. So well, that's another book that could be read before... Company. Yes, that's... And a, that's they did the, the, uh, the saga tour, I think. They did something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think
1: so. I think they were inspired by, by some of the Englishmen that had gone there already, I mean, mm-hmm. had been there already. I mean, William Morris visited Iceland, I that's think. That's right. I, I, I don't know if he came twice. At least he, he visited once mm-hmm. and wrote the journals. And, he, I mean, he translated some of the sagas mm-hmm. with Erik Magnusson. So he's a good example of someone who discovers the sagas quite early on and and and, uh, and is, is is inspired by them.
0: Let's just close then yes. with. I'll just go through your oeuvre here. The Mouth of the Whale, yes, it's a novel.
1: You mentioned the Whispering I, Muse. I mentioned
0: the Whispering Muse. I did mention the Blue Fox, yes, which won a, a big Scandinavian award, yes. right? Yes. And And then uh, the
1: latest novel that was published in in English is uh, Moonstone, The Boy Who Never
0: Was. It's an interesting examination of Spanish flu and the introduction of cinema. Yes. In Iceland, Everything everything was
1: happening there in the the autumn of of 1918. Of course, the First World War was coming to an end. Mm. So there was a great shortage of of everything. There was a volcanic eruption in, in Katla. Iceland was, was uh, acknowledged as a sovereign country on the 1st of December. Everything happened in, in, in the span of a few weeks, you know. So I decided to write a small novel, a slice of life from those uh, seven, eight weeks. And, and these uh, are,
0: are these published by Verar?
1: Yeah. Farah Strauss and Giroud.
0: Strauss and Giroud in the United States. What about in England, you know? Yes.
1: You must know. <laughs> they're, yeah, yeah. They're all, you get royalty checks. Yeah, yeah. They are all published in in, in in England. Three of them are published by a small publisher called Telegram, and Moonstone was published by Scepter. And uh, this summer and autumn, uh, Scepter and Farah Strauss and Giroud, they will publish a big novel called Codex 1962. Codex?
0: 1962,
1: 1962.
0: yeah. So you've, you've recently finished that one. Yes,
1: and it's my, it's my biggest literary work. It, it took me 25 years to finish. Uh, I wrote the first part in, uh, and published the first part in 1994. The second part uh, was published in 2001, and the third part was published in 2016. So it took me more or less 25 years to, to finish that work, and now it will be available in English.
0: Do you think it's your greatest work? I don't know.
1: I don't know. You don't know. No, it's up to us No. To yes. That. Yes. And I, and to be honest, I really don't think of my books as great works. I I just hope I get away with it. You know that is <laughs> <laughs> always always my, my feeling. You know, and always yeah. my, my hope. You know that this time I will get away with it. You know? <laughs> so
0: well, I hope you get away with it, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. I've been speaking with Jean who is an Icelandic poet, novelist, lyricist from Reykjavik, Iceland. Thanks again. Thank you.